Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Visible Voice Books in Tremont, Ohio. With a glass of wine or cup of joe in hand, readers can explore a curated selection of new and secondhand books. Learn more and shop for your next favorite read at visiblevoicebooks.com. And we are brought to you by Book Soup, known for floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, high-profile author readings, limited edition books, vinyl records, and celebrity clientele. Book Soup is an essential stop on any tour of Los Angeles. Find your next great read and shop online at booksoup.com. I was talking to a friend the other day about love stories, and we were reminiscing about the kinds of films we loved in our 20s. There was Before Sunrise, where this guy and girl met in a train and spent one day falling madly in love in Vienna. And Four Weddings and a Funeral, with all those couples and speeches and drama and dresses. And then there was this one movie, The English Patient, where a man and a woman fell passionately in love in the desert. I have always been a sucker for a Hollywood romance. But they don't always tell the rest of the story, do they? What happens after the happily ever after? What happens when the steamy, far-flung romance is replaced by the day-in, day-out reality of unloading the dishwasher or stressing about your job? Is it even possible to hold on to the magic? Our guest today would argue yes. Jonathan Penner is an actor and screenwriter known for producing and starring in the film The Last Supper, as well as acting in the television series Rude Awakening. Jonathan is also known for multiple appearances on the reality series Survivor. But we speak to him today about arguably his most famous role, that of husband and caregiver to his wife Stacy Title, an Academy Award-nominated director, screenwriter, and producer who passed away earlier this year. Says Jonathan about his wife, quote, She made all of my dreams come true. So today on Wild Precious Life, we have for you a real Hollywood love story, with both before and after the happily ever after. Jonathan Penner, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you and hearing all that you have to say about living a wild and precious life. <laughs> well, we often start out by asking our guests about their heart story, but for you, I want to phrase that slightly differently. Will you tell us your love story? I was married for 29 years and with my wife for 31 years, um, almost from the day we met. Uh, we were inseparable. And my wife, who was an extraordinary person and the kindest, gentlest, most passionate person that I have met, uh, unfortunately um, had a genetic gene mutation. And that gave her ALS, caused her to developed the symptoms of ALS, and she died of ALS after a battle of about three and a half years. She passed away in January of this year. It's now uh, October. I was very fortunate to meet Stacy when I met her. I really am a believer that, you know, there's not just sort of one person that you could love. You know, it may be the love of your life, 
But that's because I was ready to have the love of my life walk into my life, as was she. And we walked into each other's lives, you know, and um, we had similar backgrounds. We'd actually been to the same summer camp one summer together without knowing each other. No way. You know, and we were both fascinated by the movies, um, which we did together, made movies together, television together, had children together, were interested in raising our kids in the same ways, really. So, you know, we walked into each other's lives and were kind of thunderstruck by each other. And um, uh, as I say, we were basically inseparable from the time that we met until the day that she died. Can you tell us, do you remember when you met? Oh, it's a great story, actually. I mean, uh, or I guess you'll be the judge of that. But um, uh, in a nutshell, I had been, I'm an actor, have worked as an actor and was working as an actor at the time on a movie with another actor named Jason Alexander. This was just before Seinfeld. And uh, he and I were in this movie together out of town. We were in St. Louis Anyway, Jason was happily married to a wonderful, wonderful woman and had a booming career. He just won a Tony Award. Anyway, I said to him, like, I want what you have, you know. How do I get, how do I get all of that great stuff? And he said, I don't know. Anyway, so he was going to introduce me. I'll tell the whole story. The, the, he, he had just been on Broadway in this show that he won a Tony for called Jerome Robbins Broadway. And the show is him and, like, 40 women. He was the only guy in the whole show. And he'd left, this is true, he'd left the show, he'd been replaced in the show, and he'd gone on to, I think he probably shot the pilot for Seinfeld at that point. Anyway, he said, look, I'll take you, we'll go to have some dinner, and then I'll take you to the bar where all the girls, the women from the show, go after the show. We'll walk in together, and if you can't get lucky, you know, <laughs> there that night, then you got no game at all, you know. I said, great, let's go. A couple of nights before that, he calls, he says, uh, you know, we're going to let, listen, maybe my wife wants to meet you. Can she have uh, dinner with us? I said, yeah, great, of course, you know. So, And then he says, you know, like the next day, he says, yeah, I'm not comfortable leaving my wife at the restaurant when we go to the bar. Her cousin, can her cousin join us? And then they'll go to the movie, so they'll do what they're going to do, and then you and I will go to the bar. I said, great, you know, wonderful. So that night we met at a restaurant. And I walked in, and this gorgeous girl walks in right in front of me. And I would never forget it because I noticed her right away. And she walks up to the host stand or whatever, you know, and she says, Oh, Jason Alexander party, or I'm here to meet, you know, the four of us having dinner. And I said, Oh, we're having dinner together, you know. So we had a great meal, and at about 10 30 or, you know, 10 o'clock, Jason said, uh, Okay, well, you know. Uh, I'm pointing at my watch. I realize you guys can't see. I'm pointing at my, you know, I'm acting like Jason, pointing at my watch. If we're going to go, we should go, you know. And I said, I ain't going anywhere. What are you talking about? What do I, you know, why the hell do I want to, why would we go to a bar to meet women when I've just met this fantastic woman? Let's, uh, let's go do something else. So we went bowling, <laughs> which used to be a thing, you know, it shows how old I am. It's like, you know, what do you want to do? Let's go bowling. Anyway, we went bowling. And had a ball. And then, um, and then after, and they, you know, he and his wife are like an old married couple at this point. They've been married. They don't want to hang out with, you know, us. 
So I lived, I don't know if you know New York, but where are you? Where are you? Are you in New York? I'm in Cleveland, which some people call the New York of Ohio, but not very many people. Well, that's absurd. That's a silly thing. <laughs> but I've been to New York they many times. They also call it the mistake on the lake. They call it a lot of things. I know. We also call it the I, Believeland. <laughs> yes. I like Cleveland. I spent a lot of time in Cleveland. I shot a movie in Cleveland. Anyway, so after bowling, when, when Jason and Dana, his wife, said like, okay, we're going home. I said, hey, you live downtown. She lived on East 34th Street. And I lived on West 10th Street. So, yeah, we live downtown, but that's like, you know, that's like it's Cleveland and Detroit. You live in the Midwest. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll see you home, you know. So we got into a cab together. I said, let's share a cab. And I said, let's have one more drink, you know. We'll have one more drink. I'll take you to my local bar. So I took her to a bar in the West Village, and we had another drink, and we, and we kissed for the first time that night. And then, and then we were walking home, you know, and I walked her past my apartment. And she said, okay, well, you know, what a fantastic night. And I said, come on, this, you know, we can't end this night. Come upstairs. And she's like, I'm not going upstairs with you. What are you, nuts, you know? I mean, to her great credit, right? She's like, I ain't going anywhere with you. <laughs> and I said, nothing will happen. You have my word of honor. We, I'll give you pajamas and we'll go to sleep. I just don't want the night to end. And that was the truth. And we went up, she said, okay. And she went upstairs and I gave her sweatpants and a t-shirt and we climbed into bed and we just held each other and kissed and, uh, and we were inseparable ever since then. That is beautiful. Were, were Jason Alexander and his wife in on this setup? Did he lure you there with the promise of 40 women and then bait and switch? Well, it was a very soft setup, right? <laughs> because if it didn't work out at dinner, then we had a plan, you know, so it worked out perfectly. I love that she needed to trust you in order to stay and that you gave her your word that nothing would happen and that she made her feel safe. I, I know many, 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 many women for whom what you just described, the idea of wanting to be together but wanting to take it slowly as adults almost never happens. But that's what people wish for is to just be together. Yeah, they want to be together. You know, you have to be able to trust and you have to... I mean, not that what I did was so fantastic. All I did was treat her like a person and I respected her and, you know, I assuaged her, her fear. She wanted to be with me. I wanted to be with her and she was afraid of something. And I said, you don't have to be afraid of that. I, I'm, that's not going to happen. I will keep you safe. And I said that to her. That was the basis of our relationship. Not that I would keep her safe, but that we would keep each other safe, that we would respect each other and love each other. And, you know, there was no... I mean, we had a faithful, you know, we never slept with anybody else. We never did anything. You know, we were, we were each other's best friends and each other's great loves. Listening to you talk about your wife, I'm half in love with her already, too. Oh, thank my you God, for what a person. Thank you for sharing. I, um, I think sometimes when someone you love passes away, one of the hardest things is that people say, I'm so sorry, Oh, that I'm so sorry for your loss. But they don't ask you to talk about them as though talking about them is painful. I find talking about them is what you want to do. You, you want to tell this, the stories, right? Because you want to know that they're still alive. You describing that there are men out there who will hold a woman in their arms and, and trust, trust that they'll be safe for as long as they're able is 
is like the most romantic thing I think I've ever heard on this show. <laughs> so. Well, I don't mean to laugh. I'm, I'm very happy. I'm happy. We had a very romantic relationship. You know, we were both romantic people. We were very, very, uh, um, we loved each other very, very passionately. And, um, uh, but, but a lot of that came from um, uh, that, that trust and that vulnerability, you know. I know that Stacy directed you earlier in your career. And, and and not so early, right, more recently. Was that vulnerability present in your working relationship? Well, to be directed by her, sure. I mean, you know, an actor has to give him or herself, themselves over to the director if they trust the director. You know, I know, listen, there are a lot of asshole actors who would say, I'm not an asshole, I'm taking care of, you know, I'm the only one who's responsible for my career, for my instrument, for my work. You know, there are a lot of big star actors that I know, have worked with, and have worked with people that I know who were like, don't talk to me. You hired me to be me, to do this thing that I do, and I don't need to hear from you. I don't care what you think my motivation is, right? You know, so just stay out of my way and just yell action and yell cut, and it's going to be fine. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But I, listen, I never had that relationship with the director myself, and with Stacy. Whatever she wanted me to do, I would try to, uh, you know, give to her. But, but honestly, casting, directing is like 90% casting. You can't, it is true. You cast the right person and let them do their thing. You didn't cast anybody else because that's the person for the part. You're going to let them do what they're going to do. You know, you direct them a little bit. You say, a little more to the left. Or you say, have you thought about this? Did the vulnerability extend to our relationship? Of course the two of you guys worked in Hollywood for a long time together. My understanding of Stacy's story from what I've read and from what I've heard in other interviews is that she received this Oscar nomination for a short that, had she been a man, probably would have led to bigger things sooner. But as a female director, during the time that she was a female director, she had to work harder than men in a similar role. Is that a fair characterization? I, I think so. I mean, I, of course it is. There's no question. Stacy was extraordinarily talented, tenacious, ambitious, lovable person, you know, and came up in a class. When I say class, I'm talking about a, a group of directors who, the men, uh, not all of them. I mean, this is, this is, this is the sticking point, right? Not every one of them became Quentin Tarantino or David O. Russell or Steven Soderbergh or the guys that she sort of came up with. I mean, she literally heard things like, you're great, but we already had a movie directed by a woman this year. You know, or you're going to hate to hear this, but I'm just more comfortable talking to your husband. Or, I mean, you know, terrible things that she heard. Stacy, by the by, late in her career, she was already in her late forties or fifties, was trying to get like diversity program slots at NBC because then she couldn't get arrested in television. You know, I'm a diversity hire. Hire a woman. Hire somebody over the age of forty five so that I can like direct an episode of Grey's Anatomy or whatever it is. You know. I mean, this is literally an Oscar-nominated Mensa. This woman was a genius. And I'm not, I don't use that term lightly. She was literally a genius, right? And she's talking to some young, younger 
woman who wanted her as a mentor, you know, who said, well, can I, should I apply to this NBC program? And Stacy's like, you should, I'm applying to it. <laughs> and the woman was literally like, Stacy title is applying to this program. She was heartbroken. Not because it was just like, if you have to apply to this, who is a person that she looked up to, you know, Stacy had directed four feature films, had an Oscar nomination, you know, had a, a career in Hollywood as painful as it was. And the woman's like, if you have to deal with this, what the hell am I going to have to deal with? There is an unconscious bias. And even Stacy would admit to suffering from an unconscious bias. When she thought about what does a director look like, she didn't think, oh, it's a gorgeous woman. That's not who she thought of, you know, even though she was a director, right? She thought of some white guy stro strutting around in jodhpurs with a megaphone, you know, some hard-ass guy. Sarah, our lead producer on this show, was fortunate to be mentored by Stacy. She she describes the way your wife believed in people's talent with complete and utmost faith that she saw strength and talent and versatility and wonder in people that they didn't always see in themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, she was an extraordinary person who, who, you know, she had been a journalist and made herself into a, you know, a filmmaker, right? You know, which is not the normal course of, of, of events. So if people said, oh, I'm interested in this, she'd be like, okay, I'll get you a job doing that. Let's help you do that. How do I help you? She understood intrinsically. It was never something we discussed, but, you know, people are like, uh, like, you know, the bad analogy is plants. You give them water and sunshine and they grow. That's what she was like. She was like water and sunshine all the time, you know, and it was, it was extraordinary to, to witness and to, and to be part of, you know, she did that for me. She made all my dreams come true. Everything that I have that's good, I, I thank her for. It's the truth. And she gave me the, uh, this is going to sound backwards, but it's, it's true. You have the opportunity to care for somebody. And I mean that literally, to literally take care of somebody, to give care and to help somebody through what turned out to be a terminal situation, but it doesn't always have to, you know, she really suffered. But to, but to take responsibility for her care and to take care of her and to give her dignity, to honor her presence and her passing, was an extraordinary gift that, she, that I got. She didn't give it to me, but I, I got it because I was with her while she was going through her, her illness, you know, and that was uh, an extraordinary. If you don't mind, let's talk about that a little bit. I don't know what it's like to lose a partner but I do know something about being a caregiver. My dad died of brain cancer last year. Um, and before that, we rotated through as caregivers, moved in there part-time, rotated him in his bed, gave him sponge baths, sang to him when he could no longer talk. We held his hand when he lost the ability to see. Um, I imagine that you experienced a version of this, what was it like to be both a husband and a caregiver? Well, it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, it was horrible, you know. But um, uh, as a caregiver, something I had never done um, and had to learn, 
you know, in some ways that was very, uh, very enriching because it was a new learning experience for me. It was a new way of giving her love and attention and affection and to treat her with great care and to show her how she was loved, that she was loved, that she was adored, in fact. I grew through it uh, in ways that I wish I, you know, you wish you're still an idiot. You wish, you know. Wisdom is very expensive, you know, and, and, you know, wise people have had experiences and they're not all great, right? That's how you learn is you're challenged. I mean, that's the, I don't want to talk about survival. We can talk about survivor, but, you know, when they talk about challenges in life, the reason they use that word in survivor is that you are challenged. And how do you rise to the challenge? How do you cope with the challenge? That's how you face yourself, you know. You face yourself and your ability. Oh, shit, I didn't win. I couldn't do it. Or I did. It's a small victory. You know, these challenges. And that's how you grow stronger and stronger and more experienced. And, and you move forward. And if you don't have any challenges, you know, if you never run into a wall that you got to figure out how to get over, through, around, under, you know, then it means you're sitting in your room and you never went outside. You know, you never tried to open the door. You know, and so... Uh, you're not going to learn anything sitting in your room. That's all. So it was uh, it was terrible and it was uh, very enriching too. Hi, my name is Sarah and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing Business Bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. I found that being a caregiver was simultaneously heartbreaking, and then there would be these moments of crazy love or joy. And and they they seem a little bit like gallows humor, but I'll give you an example. So my father had brain cancer. So one of the things that happened is he lost his memory. He had always had a crackerjack memory. He could tell you sports games scores from 30 years ago. And he lost all that. So I could show him, I realized one night I could show him every NCAA ball game, every basketball game that was great from the past 30 years. And we watched one amazing game after another. Buzzer beaters, uh, games where the team came back by 22, Cinderella. Every single game we watched was brand new to him. He got to have them all over again. And again, it was heartbreaking because he's he's losing his memory. He's forgetting who we are. But we also had these moments of tenderness amid all of that. And I'm wondering if you can... Tell us anything about living in grief. How do you go on? So I would encourage people to not be afraid of their own emotions. And if they cannot get out of a debilitating or painful state, to seek either counsel, religious counsel, talk to a trusted confidant, and, um, and they, will, they, they will help you. I say to people, 
all the time. People very, very close to me who are going through a lot of pain. You have to understand, my family has also lost their mother, they've lost their sister, they've lost their daughter, you know, their dear friends, cousin. You know, it's senseless. This was, an, as we've said, a very, very beautiful person. You know, and uh, I say to them, I say, I don't know. I, I have no idea what, I don't have the tools to help, but I have the resources. I have enough brain power to be able to help you find some resources. You know, I can listen and tell you that I'm here for you. I love you. And I, 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 I feel for you. And I'm really with you as you're going through this. So I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know if that's advice or what that is. But that's, that's where my head went to. I think a lot of what you said rings incredibly true for me. One, giving yourself permission to feel, right? This tremendous love that you had for this person doesn't go away because the person is no longer with you. That love is still right here. So giving yourself permission to feel. And we just spoke with Lori Gottlieb on this show. She wrote, maybe you should talk to someone, this book that's being turned into a series. And, and the idea is simply that, yeah, sometimes you do need to sit with someone in your grief, someone who knows how to to sit with you and hold you in those moments and being not afraid to feel and also not afraid to go to someone who can help you heal. The late writer Rachel Held Evans, people who listen to the show will have heard me say it before that we live inside an unfinished story and that you live inside your unfinished story, but you also live inside Stacy's unfinished story. And there are wishes and blessings that she surely had for you that you carry with you now, that all of us who've lost people are living inside of the unfinished stories of, of those who are no longer walking with us. And out of an honor and love for them, we keep putting one foot in front of the other. The way that any of us can honor anybody is to live in a way that they would like to live. They cannot do it. We have an opportunity right now to, as, as people alive on earth, to do stuff that we may take for granted, or we may think, oh, that's not that big a deal. But boy, they would give their, they'd give anything to be back and able to just do it, to just do the effing dishes, you know, to just make their bed, to just give you a hug, to tell your kids how much you love them. They'd give anything. Stacy could do that. And so we have to do that because that's really what life is about. Yes, of course, she would have wanted to have directed another movie to win in the Academy Award she didn't win. What she really would want to do is give me a big hug and give me a big kiss and tell me how much she loves me, how proud she is of me, how, how, how much she loved spending time with me. And I, I really believe that, you know, and that's what we can do. That's what we can do right now. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I have dedicated myself now to making as many connections, to being as kind as I can be, to living the way that Stacy would would want to live if she could, and the way that I have seen that I can live. You know, it's as simple as that. Nothing I'd rather do. You heard it here then, guys. Love and live magnanimously, if not because you want to, because the people who loved you magnanimously would have wanted you to, and to celebrate those everyday moments that the people who are no longer with us don't have. Um, in some ways, I am angry at your survivor label that you carry as the ultimate survivor guy, because there's this terrible irony about that label now, right? 
Stacy is gone and yet you survive. Survivor was a nice part of my life, is a nice part of my life. It was like a hundred days of my life. I'm old. I'm, I'm going to be 60 on my next birthday. You know what I mean? I had a lot of days. So yeah, Survivor, you know, it's a big part of my identity in the world. Uh, my mother is a Holocaust survivor, right? She was part of this crazy true story of the 50 children. And, and it's a great story. She was one of the 50 children. She was five years old when she came to this country on a boat with 49 other kids. Anyway, they had like a reunion. There's still a couple of those kids who are now all in their 80s or 90s. She's the youngest at 88, um, are still around in their family and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. We did a Zoom call with reunion. And then after that, I had a, a Zoom call with some kids from Syracuse who have an online survivor game. They asked me would I help them or encourage them or, you know, talk to them about survivor. I said, of course I would. I would be happy to. And I was. So I was talking to another friend. I said, oh, I got this survivor thing. And then I got this survivor thing. And they're like, what, what do you, you know, <laughs> ah, this Holocaust survivor and this, act, you know, the survivor TV show. And now I'm the survivor of ALS. And, you know, so yeah, I'm the survivor guy. Tell me your mom's story. How did she end up a child? How did she end up one of the 50 children on that boat? There was an extraordinary couple in Philadelphia in the late 30s, the Krauss family, who knew that things were, <laughs> were not going well for the Jewish people in Europe and uh, said, you know, let's see if we can get some of these kids in. So the Krauss family was, had a, had a, were part of a Jewish club organization, you know, golf club social club, there were some dead visas that had been assigned that had never been collected, that were, that were, had worked their way through the system, but were just sitting there, right? So Krauss said, he knew somebody at the State Department, he said, if I, can I get those, if I can get affidavits from my club that we will adopt all these kids that don't, that parents don't get out? And they said, that we can do. My mother and her sister, ages five and eight, were part of this kinder, what was called the kinder transport, and were taken away from their parents for a number of months, put on a boat, taken to America. Um, there's lots of intrigue and espionage of getting these visas approved by the Nazis and crazy, fantastic story. I mean, it would make a great movie, honestly. Um, and... Some of the kids, most of the kids' parents did get out, including my mother and her, her sister's parents made it out. But some of the kids didn't and were adopted and were raised in Philadelphia. But, um, you know, this was a, a, a real mitzvah. And about a thousand people, we figured out, from these 50 kids, their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren were allowed to, you know, live. I mean, I would not have survived if it hadn't been for this. I, I never would have been born. My mother would have died in Auschwitz with her grandparents and her and her aunt who all perished, you know. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a fabulous story. There's a good book about it and there's a little movie. That's an incredible story. I've never heard this story before. I'm picturing what it must have been like for those parents to put their children on that boat. I, I'm, I am having goosebumps. I'm a mother of three myself. But to, to know in your gut that you have to do this thing to keep your child safe but to not know whether you're ever going to see your child again, that they had that 
love and faith and maybe even something deeper, just this survivor (laughs) instinct that they had to do that. My God. Did your mother talk about this? I know from other conversations that that there tended to be, and there are all kinds of people, but there tended to be two approaches to, to if you went through that, for some families, they never spoke of it. I, I don't want to bring that horrible tragedy to my children. So from, some people never spoke of it. But of course, it was always alive in them. And then for other people, it was just part of their story that was handed down to their children. Wh- which family were you? My mother was very much would talk about it. I knew the story from the time I knew any story because she's like, you're a miracle. I'm a miracle. Every day on this earth for me is a effing gift. Most of the people died. There's no reason why I'm still here. It was absolute dumb effing luck that my mother saw that thing. My father was out of town. He never would have permitted it to happen. He came back and found out that I was getting put on a boat and he went bananas you know, all this stuff. She, so she made sure I knew about it. Whereas her sister, who had one daughter, never talked about it, hated to talk about it. It was absolutely, you know, it was so painful for her. And uh, it, was, it was interesting, this, uh, this Zoom reunion, to hear the different versions that some of these kids, you're right, hadn't heard about it until they were 30 or 40 years old, you know, didn't even know that they're, you know, how'd you get here? Oh, I, I came on a boat, and, you know. They didn't want to talk about it at all, whereas others are like, you better go raise money for this organization. You better keep this story alive. You better remember six million of us died and the fact that we're here, we're here so we can keep that story alive. It's the only reason that we survived. You know, very, very interesting opposite spectrum of of, of reactions. I wonder if that storytelling, I've heard it said that actors are in part just storytellers. And I wonder if this storytelling that came through your family this this story of survivor this for survival this story of you being a miracle i wonder if that in any way fed into you becoming an actor um I, maybe i mean my brother isn't an actor it's a it's a very clean way to look at things but it's probably it's probably too too clean well when did you know that you wanted to be an actor Oh, as a kid, no, no, very, very young. No, as I was, I was hurry. I was eight years old. You know? How did you go from wanting to act to actually being an actor? You know, it was very different forty years ago, thirty-five years ago when I started acting. Right? You, I came out of college. I had a little bit of, of acting education, not much of one, but some. You know, I had some idea. I liked to be on stage, and you. You read the showbiz papers. There used to be papers that you could buy every week that had auditions in there, you know, and you start to audition around until you get a professional gig and then you get an agent and then you get a movie. You know, it took me three or four years before I, as you know, basically waiting tables um, and doing shows with, you know, U-Hauls that you drive around with the scenery in the back and stuff like that before I, and then things started, you know, things start to come together sort of quickly, right? Things start to snowball. I got a lot of commercial work. I was a, I was a very um, successful commercial actor for a number of years. I did some soap work. I did some independent film work. And then I got like White Palace, which was this movie um, with Jason, you know, that was a studio movie. 
and then I met my wife, and then we made a short, and then I did a TV series, and then I used the money, you know, like that. Things, things. But I took, you know, it was not an overnight thing. It took years of, of pounding the pavement, as we used to say, pounding the pavement. Do you remember an early role that you got that was actually probably a kind of a terrible role, but felt awesome to you? Because it was it was a new role, and and even if it was a U-Haul that you're driving around with scenery, do you remember an early role like that? Oh, they were all great. I loved I loved every role that I did. I was the sure guy. Put up your hand if you're sure. If you're confident, you're not going to smell. I was that guy. <laughs> I was a Levi's five hundred one jeans guy. I was. Um, I did a terrible movie, and I'm not good in the movie. But Sandy Sandy Bullock was my love interest in the movie. Sandy Bullock, yep, and uh, it's not a good movie, but I, you know, I, I did the best. I had a director who had no idea how to direct me. I'd never been in a movie. I had no idea what I was doing, and I think that's very obvious from the movie. Sandy, on the other hand, comes out smelling like a rose because she was fantastic. She was wonderful. I did a soap. I played a scumbag on a soap. That was hilarious and great fun. Every role I ever got, I was so happy to get, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a writer and I can still remember the feeling of some of my first paid gigs. So you mentioned being the sure roll-on deodorant guy. One of my first paid writing gigs was to write ad copy and proofread it for boxes of deodorant. And and the idea that anyone's going to pay me to to write, right? I, I wrote a, a trifold for a veterinarian talking about the difference between a CAT scan and an MRI and an X-ray for your pet. And I got paid to write. And these were paid writing gigs. And I was delighted by them. Even though, looking back, I didn't know anything about any of that. Just just excited to be working within your craft. Jonathan Penner, I could talk to you all day, but we have a wrap-up that we do here, and I want to honor your time. So I'm going to lead us into our closing questions that we do with folks. These are um, There's not a point system. They're just... They're just uh, easy. <laughs> I'm not going to win. Okay, damn it. All right, I'll do it There's anyway. no prize. Uh, you just pick one. <laughs> okay, um, for you, but multiple choice, dogs or cats? I have both. I'm not going to pick one. I love All both. Right. I have a cat named Blue and a dog named Tootsie. <laughs> Ooh, for the movie? Yes, because she looks like Dustin Hoffman in Dread. She's a long <laughs> black dog. People think it's because she looks like a Tootsie Roll. But it's because she looks like Dustin Hoffman in Dread. She's a long-haired dachshund. <laughs> I love it. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? I guess the beach. I love to swim. But I like the mountains too. But if I had to pick one, I'd go to the beach. All right. Are you an early bird or a night owl? I've become much more of an early bird. Um, uh, I used to be a night owl, but now I'm up at 6, 6.30 every day. All right. What? When it comes to reality TV shows, would you say that you're more of a great British bake-off fan or are you more into a show like Alone? I like the great British bake-off. <laughs> I don't watch a hell of a lot of TV. That's that's the truth. I don't watch a lot of TV. I do watch Survivor and I used to watch the great British bake-off. Stacy and I love that. Excellent. I watched a lot of that. <laughs> are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the band-aids are? Both. <laughs> and what's a favorite movie? That you love. My favorite movie is a movie that few people know anymore. It's called The American Friend. 
1979 German film directed by a German man named Wim Wenders, spelled W-I-M-W-E-N-D-E-R-S. It's about the um, Ripley character that Matt Damon played in The Talented Mr. Ripley. That's a great movie. It's based on another book about Ripley. And he's played by an actor named Dennis Hopper, who you know if you saw. And there's a wonderful actor named Bruno Gans, German, who plays a character named Jonathan in the movie. And it's, some people think it's very slow. Some people think it's very strange. They're right. And it's my favorite movie. All right. A slow and strange movie. We will make sure to link to that on the show notes. Uh, what's, your favorite, <laughs> what's your favorite ice cream? Oh, I like something super sweet, like pralines and cream, you know, or like uh, Rocky Road. I like. I like that. All right, and last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, uh, what would we see you doing? I'd be in bed with my wife. Ooh. Is this uh, like the early holding each other, or were we getting a scandalous picture? I just want to make sure I can visualize it. I don't know. <laughs> it would start off early, <laughs> and then it would get scandalous, and then it would end uh, just cuddling up, you know? I mean, like... Uh, some sometime in there, you take a movie and then you pick a frame. Any of those would probably be pretty happy. That's wonderful. Well, Jonathan Penner, thank you for being here. Thank you for helping us believe in true love, honestly, and vulnerability and what it means to make each other's dreams come true. Thank you for sharing your, your wife's legacy with us. My pleasure. Uh, for thank a lot of us who are married or partners, I don't think we always focus on the the daily joy we focus on the daily annoyances you know how he doesn't load the dishwasher right or how she leaves her messes on the floor um but you are reminding us that every day is a gift and to be loved and vulnerable it, it is a gift if, if i if you have one more second i can just speak to that because I do. okay there are two there are two things that come to my mind one is if you don't like the way they're doing it then do it yourself in other words you either do it yourself and it gets done the way you want or you let them do it and though it's not done the way you want, you don't have to think about it anymore. Okay? It's yours. You want the responsibility? Do it. And then, yes, it's going to drive you crazy for a day when it's not the way you want to do it. And they say, oh, shit, I never have to think about the dishes again. That's his job. And fiddly, bing, bang, boom. Okay? You know, and the other is nobody is perfect no relationship is perfect certainly my relationship with stacy wasn't perfect we thought about murdering each other all the time you know i mean honestly we fought because we never let we did we but but because we never let each other get away with any bullshit there was never any any stuff between us that we needed to to get through if somebody said something offensive you know then you say you can't say that but let's clear the air right now so that there was no, never any buildup, you know? And so you simply are engaged all the time. And when somebody says something mean, that's really what it is. If somebody says something unkind or thoughtless, you say, no, sorry, not going to let you say that to me. No one talks to me like that, and certainly not you. And let's not have that anymore. Because nobody's perfect. Nobody's going to handle everything perfectly. We all make mistakes. And you just got to have a, a couple of boundaries and say, no. My self-respect says you cannot speak to me like that. And and they might go, ah, it's all your fault. And you're so, she'd, she'd say to me, you're such a, you're a, you're a, you're like a peeled peach. You're so 
tender and vulnerable all the time. And I'd say, yeah, I'm a peeled peach. And when you drop a peeled peach, it really hurts. So don't drop the peach. Treat the peach with the tenderness that the peach deserves. And then the peach is happy, and you've got a very nice little piece of fruit that you don't have to pick up and clean up after, you know. <laughs> oh, Jonathan Penner, the peeled peach. I love this. To love and be loved. To trust someone, not just in strength, but in vulnerability. To hold someone's hand on their last day. Thank you for your storytelling. And uh, to all of our listeners, we are wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourselves. Be good to one another. And we will see you again soon on this Wild and Precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.